This is a Main Hustle Media Podcast. Welcome to Melatilly Mix, the podcast about race and identity from the mixed race perspective. I am your host, Charmaine, aka Mixed Girl Maine, and I'm laughing because this is the, I don't know, like 12th time I've attempted to record my intro today, and I am just... <laughs> Okay, so when you are an independent podcaster who podcasts from a desk in your living room of your tiny LA apartment, you have to put up with the sounds of the other apartment. I have changed my microphones so that they weren't picking up actual conversations in other apartments as was my first microphone or or just like the life buzzing around me type of thing. So I finally have a, a mic that I'm comfortable with and seems to do pretty good on audio and everything like that. But it never fails any time of day that I attempt to either record my intros or my promos or or even sometimes my interviews, my next door neighbors or my above neighbors, I can't tell, take a shower. I don't know why it can be because there's times I record at 3 a.m., 2 a.m. because I'm up or like right now I started at 11 a.m. It is now 12.02 p.m. of the same day. I think, like I said, this is my 11th or 12th attempt at doing my thing. Every time I've allowed, I've stopped and allowed it to get silent again, they've turned the shower back on. So I don't know what's going on over there. But the shower turns on over the last two months that I've been recording, two, three months I've been recording at this point, the shower cuts on every single time. It's amazing. And also what you're hearing right now is someone is hammering a picture or something that just started. So I've gone this whole hour just complaining about the sink. Now I got this person hammering something. So anyways, little control freak moment for Charmaine available to all my listeners. But at this point, I, I'm just going to go ahead and let it happen and just take a deep breath and understand that this is the life of an independent podcaster that does shit from home. Mark Marin does it, and now he makes a whole bunch of money, and he does it in his garage. So if it's good enough for him and he can deal with background noise, then it's got to be good enough for me, and I can deal with it too. I will keep telling myself that I can deal with it. <laughs> um, all right, moving on. So last week, we introduced the Patreon page, which allows for people to sponsor independent podcasts like mine. Uh, our website is www.patreon.com slash militantly mixed. And that is P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. Uh, even I sponsor a couple of podcasts that I really like or listen to on a regular basis on there. You can sponsor our show at as low as a dollar a month to as high as you wish. There's different reward levels for your sponsorship, anything from just a tip jar. You just want to help keep us going and help us grow and develop to getting shout outs on social media or um, shout outs on the webs on the uh, actual show itself, the recording. There's also, we have mini pins, we have tote bags 
coming eventually. Uh, we also have t-shirts in the process. So depending on the level that you wish to sponsor, if you stick around with us for a couple months, those rewards will start to hit. And also, once we start getting more sponsors, we will be able to afford the, you know, the time and the um, ability to put on extra content on the Patreon page. This extra content will be exclusive to sponsors. So if you want to know more about us and the show or the people that we talk to on the show, uh, that's will, where you will get that extra information. In some cases, I may cut down an interview for time and you know maybe shorten a section for to be more concise, but we actually rambled on about it back and forth for a while. Those types of things I will be adding to Patreon. Uh, so like I said, it's not quite up yet. It will start to get up soon. And as we get more sponsors, it will also increase in, in, you know, more content will go up there as we get more sponsors. Your sponsorship will help us improve our equipment. Maybe I can get some uh, sound blankets so that you won't hear the the people hammering or showering next door. Um, it'll also, you know, continue to help us with hosting our, our, um, our podcast and spreading the word so that we get more people. So independent podcasts really survive not just on the amount of people that download our episodes, but on the independent sponsors of our shows. There's a few uh, podcasts that I've listened to for a long time that are now dead podcasts because they didn't, you know, they weren't able to maintain their, um, their hosting fees and things like that without sponsorship. So uh, we do hope that you are enjoying the show and that you're getting a lot out of it. And if you are, if you can give a dollar a month here and there, or if, um, or do a one-time donation, that would be great. We, we don't quite have the one-time donation button available yet. That is actually coming probably in mid, mid August. We we're finalizing the website. And when that is available, it will be up on there and you'll be able to donate as a one-time only thing. If you do want to be a sponsor of the show though, Patreon is the place to go. And again, as low as a dollar a month to as high as you wish. We did get our first sponsor last week who is actually a friend of mine from my community college days when I used to go to Sierra College in Rockland, California in the late 90s. Um, We actually haven't seen each other probably since my wedding, honestly, which was in 2005, I think is when I got married. So, but we've stayed in contact through social media and they didn't asked to be named, so I'm not naming them, but I know that they're listening, or now I know that they're listening, and I want, you know, to thank them for sponsoring the show. It means a lot, especially after not having seen you in so many years. Uh, So thank you for listening, and I appreciate you and love you, and thank you. All right. There are a few other announcements that I want to make, but we're not quite ready yet. And I don't want to expose it before we're, we're ready. But we have a couple things coming down the pipe that I'm really excited about. And some of the other participants that have been on the show already or are coming on the show are involved in this in this new thing that I'm excited about. So stay tuned that, uh, you know. We'll, we'll start to talk about it as it forms a little bit more, but it's going to be good. And I'll be excited to share that with you. Now to the episode. We are on episode five. And I, gosh, things have changed so much in just the five weeks that the show has been on. So a little bit of background for those of you that might not quite be aware. I actually started recording my interviews back in, in May of 2018, but we didn't actually launch the show until to the, uh, July. So a lot of the interviews that you've heard so far have been from the earlier days of recording. Um, some of them are, are from re- more recent recordings. And so you, you, you may notice a difference in um, quality <laughs> of the, of the sound for some of the interviews and, and 
and in some cases, even my own um, interview skills have gotten a little bit better once I once I started piecing together more of what I wanted out of the show. Uh, they'll still be for the next month or so. You'll still get some episodes that are a little bit more interview question, answer, question, answer style, because that's was was what I was originally thinking was the way to make this happen. But really what I wanted out of this podcast was to be more conversational. I have gone away from the standard question, answer types of conversations. I only sort of ask questions if they've said something that makes me want a little bit more information. So this is actually one of the interviews that I did on the cusp of that switch from the standard question, answer interview to more of a conversation. I actually probably am listening more in this discussion than in um, some of my more recent interviews because uh, this person in particular, his story is pretty captivating and I felt like it was better told by him than really inserted by, you know, me inserting things. There was a a few times I asked questions, but uh, our guest this week is Milton Washington. He is of Black and Korean ethnic heritage. He was born in Korea, uh, the product of a, I mean, I guess we would say a Korean prostitute to the military base, but I think it's a, a lot more complicated than than just that, um, given the, the time period that that Milton was born and the landscape of Korea while there was the American occupation. Um, uh, well, you'll hear it in the interview. It's a little bit more complicated than than to, to just reduce it to a, you know, his mother being a Korean prostitute. His father was a black uh, member of military personnel, but he does not know his biological father. And uh, he was eventually adopted by a, a black American family, military family that brought him to the U.S. when he was around ten, eight to 10 years old. Uh, there's a question about about his age too because of the nature of how he was born and um and so he was you know from that point on raised as a as an american kid with a with a black family he and and another black and korean adopted brother were were brought on by this family and he's got a a really interesting story something unlike anything that i've experienced but in the course of this podcast he was the first black asian person that i connected with and i have so little interaction with other black asians and in particular black japanese like myself that when i first met milton i was pretty like oh my gosh you know i was excited uh you know it doesn't happen very often there's a huge stigma about uh, black asians the way that we are treated in comparison to white asian mixes is uh is quite a lot different. Uh, colorism is a big problem in the Asian community. It's in all communities, I think I've said a million times, but with Asians, you know, being dark is not ideal. So if you mix with black, you're just, you're, you're, you're fucking up. What are you doing? And, and we both share sort of that baggage of how our blackness messes with our Asianness. And he's got, he's got an incredible story. I will I'll flip it over to him and he will introduce himself and start and start telling his story. But before we do that, there's a few things that he is working on right now that I would like to promote. He does talk about it a little bit in the interview, but again, that interview was done a few months ago. So just to freshen it up and update it, we'll put some stuff on our Instagram and our Twitter and our Facebook about a photography exhibit project that he's working on right now. Uh, you can also find he's, he's also working on a memoir about his experience called Slicky Boy, which he talks a little bit about what Slicky Boy means and everything in the, in the, in the episode. But you can go. Go to facebook.com slash slicky boy memoir and that's s-l-i-c-k-y slicky boy memoir uh he also has a slicky boy studios 
Facebook page uh, for his business, which is a, a sort of business consulting company for small businesses. He He's on Instagram and I think he says he's on Twitter, but he doesn't really like Twitter that much as Slicky Boy Memoir and Slicky Boy Studios. Uh, so please check out his art. He has an exhibit from a, a couple months ago, which was sort of like an Afro neon fashion fashion design thing. We've got another exhibit coming up, which I, like I said, I'll reference on Instagram. So please check out our social media over the next couple days to see that. You can find us at on Twitter and Instagram at militantlymix.com. We are also on Facebook, www.facebook.com slash militantlymixed. And again, don't forget our Patreon, www.patreon.com slash militantlymixed. So without further ado, here is my discussion with Milton Washington. go ahead and let you have a chance to introduce yourself a little bit and then we can kind of go into book and and your upbringing and everything that you want to talk about okay cool thank you yeah uh my name is milton washington it used to be uh pop milton um, in south korea i am uh black and korean my mother was korean father was black i'm assuming i uh, never met him uh, but i was told about him and um i was born somewhere in south korea probably late 60s and it was my mother and i living in south korea first kind of out in the village then uh in a town called tonguchon when i was about six for a hot minute and then living in a in a town called Bupyong, which is what's also known as a camp town because that's also where a large U.S. military installation was. And then at around the age of eight, I got adopted, put in an orphanage for a couple of weeks, and I basically kind of stole my way into the car and the lives and the family of uh, the Washingtons, a black military family uh, originally from Texas who was uh, serving a tour in South Korea, uh, one of several tours that they served in South Korea with their entire family, who are now, um, you know, kind of my siblings. So, I, you know, I'm writing a book about all this called Slicky Boy, which is a memoir. And, you know, it, it, it's it's really about, you know, the identity. It's about U.S. militarism um, and the effects of all that. It's about multiculturalism. It's about me trying to get my hands and, and, and mine around what it meant to be black before I even knew what black was, you know. And it's me trying to, you know, kind of find my way after adoption and, and, and trying to kind of find my tribes, you know. But but then ultimately, you know, kind of settling on the idea that, you know, I caught a lot of hell in South Korea for being different and, you know, with this dream of kind of fitting in once I got to the States. But then when I got to the States, I was still different. But fortunately for me, I was a kid who was very self-aware and I was also very, I was a kid who was extremely determined to kind of prove the world, prove to the world that they were wrong about me. Um, and I did indeed have a lot of value. And that kind of idea of, you know, kind of, you know, crafting, you know, my expertise and kind of all things that was, you know, being a kid 
tra- you know, kind of translated into me becoming very good at certain things in high school, such as football and mm. um, in around social issues and kind of how I was having a mouthpiece and being able to kind of defend myself verbally and physically. And fortunately for me, I was a, you know, a, a kid that was good enough and big enough to go play Division One football. So, right. you know, I ended up having... I ended up having, even though I was going through some struggles, I ended up having some really, really good aspects or really good attributes that gave me almost kind of a privileged life, uh, privileged life in, in many ways. So, mm-hmm. you know, so it, it's a it, it's about kind of owning all that and arriving at a conclusion that, you know, when being different was such a liability back then. Now, um, you know, I think it's a it's it's probably my greatest asset, but also taking the, you know, the, the good and the bad along with that, which is, you know, there are plenty of times that, uh, you know, throughout the course of a day or a week or month um, in which I go, you know, being different is, you know, can be extremely lonely, you know, um, but understanding, you know, kind of what my purpose in life is, you know, you know, not everybody is dealt the same hand, you know, but I said that I'm going to go ahead and, you know, I'm going to fully understand what my hand is and I'm going to own that hand and I'm going to do what I got to do to make a positive difference in this life. Right. You know, so, so that's kind of what my whole story is about. So one of the things you said just now, those kind of interesting, you said I was born in South Korea sometime around the late sixties. Do you, you don't have established paperwork. You don't, you don't quite know exactly how old you are. Is that true? I don't because, um, if you're born, you know, mixed race during that time in South Korea, South Korea doesn't recognize you as a citizen. Ah. So technically I, I have never been a citizen of South Korea, even though for the first, you know, eight years of my life, that's all I knew I was, because I was hmm. born there. It was, that was my, that was my language. That was my culture. I didn't know anything about anything else except for this kind of idea of America was, which is, you know, gold, golden cities that floated in the clouds with flying cars. <laughs> right. Um, so when, after I got adopted, we basically, my family had to kind of establish my, my age and my wow. birthday. And, you know, so I got naturalized. And once I started school, I was around eight years old. They didn't want me to miss a whole lot of school, but they essentially kind of wound my clock back from what they thought my real age was mm. to two years. And they did the same thing for the other kid, Joseph, that got adopted mm. um, because they didn't want us missing a whole lot of school. And so officially my birthday, is September 1970. But, you know, there's some pretty good evidence out there that says I'm really I'm, I was born around 68. Oh, wow. Um, that's interesting. I mean, I wouldn't have expected. I, I guess I do understand that sort of like you're not a citizen because Japan does that as well. Even when you know, foreign workers come in, if they want to be established as citizens, they have to they have to relinquish their Korean, they relinquish their Korean citizenship, but also relinquish their Korean name. And they have to take right. on a Japanese name to 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 be allowed to even just work in the country, not even necessarily become citizens. Right. Um, so it's, it's crazy. That's sort of a Asian thing across the board. Yeah, it's, it's Asian, you know, but I suspect that there's probably other countries that kind of did the same thing we just don't have we don't have the same numbers to kind of aggregate all that all those data points because you know you know asia was you know heavily militarized by the u.s Mm -hmm. you know so it's just it's just a good it's it's a good large sampling of these types of stories and 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 i have to say that's that's kind of you know it's one of the things that you know i say about adoption in general and and people who are who have who have been in these situations like me you know i I keep telling folks i'm like you're not the only you're 
you're not the only just because you were adopted, you're not the only person that's been through some severe trauma. Right. You know, severe trauma comes in all different forms and fashion. And there, I know some people that are extremely traumatized and they got, you know, they got parents. Right. You know, and, and to me, trauma is trauma. This is just our brand of trauma. Um, you know, and I say that to say that there are a lot of people in this world that are in some serious pain. And one of the things that I think that lessens that pain is when you know that you have, you know, others. You're not, you're not in that, you're not in that right. boat by yourself. Right. You know? And we talked a little bit about this in sort of our pre-discussions too about building that community and feeling like, you know, I mean, probably certainly with being adopted, but being in this, being a mixed race person in mostly monoracial spaces, if you don't reflect the space that you're in, if you don't look like everybody else, you feel like an, a kind of orphan of your race. You know, I like for me, I don't right. present as black as I grew up and and feel I identify more black than I do the other races that I am. And I had to code switch a bunch. You know, if I'm in my right. Japanese grandma's household, I behave in a very Japanese manner. Right, um, right. Deference to the older generations and things like that. There's a version of that on the black side, but it's slightly different. It's not the it's it's not like a, a hierarchical deference it's it's true you know different things like you know how the grandmothers tend to be more important than the grandfathers things like that absolutely that sort of happens yeah yeah, it does and we built like through this through militantly mix and through these other channels that uh, you and i both have had throughout our life we're finding our community we're trying to we're trying to build the family that we we don't really have even though we don't all look alike So yeah, the, yeah, absolutely. Going back to the the Bupyong Camp Town area, so it was a heavily U.S. military area. Is this where I, I know that you you talk about this a little bit in your book about about your mother? Is this uh, was this a draw for people, poor Koreans that would kind of come to the area to service the the military, the U.S. military, and that's sort of how your origin starts. Well, in, in the, the the short answer is yes, with an asterisk. Um, you know, the 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 term Camp Town is basically a Korean town that revolves around the U.S. military base because mm-hmm. the U.S. military base is a source of of, of money, U.S. dollars, and um, you know, this is just a kind of a little factoid. You know, after the Korean War, you know, there were there was nearly a, a hundred military bases throughout South Korea. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, Army, Navy and Air Force, etc. Yeah, you know, varying sizes. Yeah. South Korea wanted the, the protection of the U.S. military to defend. And, you know, the communist aggressions of not only North Korea, but, you know, their backers, you know, the, you know, Russia and China. And, you know, so they wanted, they needed that protection. South Korea needed that protection from the U.S. military. But the other kind of part of that agenda around why South Korea kind of wanted the U.S. military there is because the U.S. military coupled with the kind of a camp town prostitute, you know, that that operates within the red light districts out right outside of the gates of um, these military bases. The Camp Town prostitute was the number one earner of the U.S. dollar. And South Korea, after 35 years of Japanese occupation and then, you know, uh, um, the U.S. dropping the bomb on Japan and ending that occupation and kicking all the Japanese out of South Korea, they had to kind of shore up their, you know, their financials, you know, to, to, to support that country. So they had to get their economic infrastructure back in place. Mm-hmm. And, the, you know, this was basically the the Korea's Marshall Plan, you know, so they were they, they weren't just given a big sum of money like, you know, like in Europe. So they had to earn it. And the number one earner of those U.S. dollars that that in, that were injected into the Korean economy was the Korean camp town prostitute. Hmm. So so with that, South Korea would kind of collaborate with the U.S. military and they would kind of promote 
this work of hey hey come to the bars within these they didn't call them um, kitchen they didn't call them red light districts or also known as kitchenjohns but they would say you know basically you know you're a young woman you don't have too many opportunities come here and you can get these dollars hanging out with these U.S. soldiers which was which ended up being a pretty attractive option to you know a lot of young girls around South Korea who really didn't have too many options after. 35 years of occupation. So the camp town was a place that would draw a lot of these girls to do this work. And, you know, my mother, who was a mama-san or a boss, you know, she was one of the girls, she was one of the women who who managed these girls, you know, so in chances are, I think, you know, kind of like you said, I was probably a product of my mother doing this work, you know, and, and that's how I kind of became into being, you know, right. but um, but I do know that, you know, my first memories of me and my mother were out in the village away from the camp town. So, you know, and it's just like kind of like anything else. When you're in the game, you probably have kind of a, you know, kind of a love hate relationship with that game right. and you're in it and you're out and you're in it and you're out. And so when, you know, my early memories out in the village, completely away from the camp town, my mother's probably out. But then, you know, uh, we ended up getting kicked out of the village and, you know, probably with few options, you know, she probably got back in the game because it was her best option. Right. So that brings us sort of to Salt, which is not only a chapter in the mixed Korean book, correct, but it's also something that's going to be in Slicky Boy. Exactly. So this is a chapter I read like middle of the night because I was up and thinking thinking about the podcast. And it really, I mean, it, it paints such a clear picture for s- sort of those early memories of you and that some of the things that you were talking about in there, that uh, waking up and being that fear is very similar to the kind of fear that I felt in terms of uh, being black in an Asian space when I was with my mom's side of the family. So in particular, my grandmother, we did have to hide that we were black from the extent extended family. Um, So my grandmother knew, but she didn't necessarily want us to tell the extended family. And so there was always this concern that I was going to drop blackness in a space and have that kind of fear of my grandmother's disappointment or whatever those eyes looking at me. And I felt like that was something that you kind of talked about in Salt. So do you want to share a little bit about about that chapter and the significance that moment had in changing the direction of your life? Well, um, I'd say that, you know, kind of what the chapter is about is, you know, first of all, I'm, I'm about five years old. And again, it's my mother and I, we're in the village and I wake up in the morning and I've uh, peed in my little bed on the floor. And, and, uh, you know, (laughs) being that I was a kid that was kind of subjected to kind of this extreme isolation, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, I, I guess I'm not surprised that, you know, that's one of my kind of you know, most concrete memories. You right. know, I, I used to do it a lot. Not only is that memory concrete because of that isolation, but it's also the it's the tradition. It's this Korean tr- tradition that, you know, even with some of the Koreans that I know, you know, if they're exposed to this story, most of the Koreans that you'll you'll meet here in the States are from Seoul, you know, which is kind of, you know, it's not country, you know, and but they may know of this tradition because they may have aunts and uncles that's told them about this tradition who's lived out in the country. Mm. Right. So and this tradition involves what you have to do is you have to take this this what's called a key. I mean, a key is a kind of a it's if you think about a really, really uh, large basket woven plate, it's it, it's a tool to dehusk rice. 
Okay. And, and, and every family has one. And so what you have to do is you have to take that key. I mean, I guess in different villages, you can use different, I guess they, they have, you know, different traditions, different tools to do this, but you have to basically knock on everybody's door. Um, and then you have to tell them that you peed the bed. This is for, this is who I am. This is who my mother is. And the reason I'm coming to your door, because I peed the bed again, I'm a bad kid. And then the, usually the mother um, of the house kind of chastises you uh, verbally. And then they go in, grab a handful of rock salt as you put your key up to your chest, kind of you know, up against your chest. And then they throw a bunch of salt at you. Hmm. Um, and some of that salt, after it hits your face, it falls into the key. And you have to repeat that, you know, to every neighbor. So then when you when you come back home, you have a, um, you know, kind of a reddened face from from the ridicule and the crying. And, right. But you also have a key f- full of this rock salt. That's basically the kind of the most valuable thing in the village, because, um, you know, we, we didn't have currency in the village right. um, at, the, at the time. So and it's valuable because salt is, you know, so instrumental, you know, in the village, you, you you cook with it, you clean with it, you cure foods with it, preserve foods with it, etc. Um, so then when I come back home, my mother has kind of cleaned up the house. And, um, you know, when I say house, it's a, you know, kind of uh, basically a clay hut, thatched roof, um, right. you know, cause there's no cars, no electricity, anything like that. And then, you know, she, she, uh, she sprinkles some of the salt onto the floor. And, and the reason all this, and I, you know, I didn't want to, you know, I don't really want to give it away, but, you know, the reason that all this happens is because that tradition says, dictates that, that the reason that the child keeps peeing in the bed is because that child is basically possessed with the spirit of incontinence. Right. And the salt is the cleaning agent. So, you know, when you, when the kid is going around knocking on the doors, you throw the salt on him because that's going to get rid of the spirit of incontinence from the child and then the collection of the salt that salt needs to be taken back home because the spirits of incontinence also are in the house so the mother has to clean the house and sprinkle the salt to clean the house in that way and and kind of you know within this within this chapter it's you know i'm a kid that uh i didn't really have a whole lot of margin of error to bring any unnecessary attention to myself or my mother because i was the only black black kid in the village. And and then at the end of that chapter, there's a knock on the door and, and then a discussion with my mother and a couple of other women from the village. And basically they say the village elders have decided that I must go and my mother must go because I'm bringing too much shame um, onto this village because, you know, villages from all around are saying, yeah, there's a black kid in that one village over there. Mm. Me and my mother uh, are kicked out. Um, and, and we're kicked out because, you know, just simply because I was black right. and she had a black kid. And that's kind of the other part of this, this chapter. Not only did I catch hell, but and, and, I, and I was kind of defined basically outside of the norms of Korea and what is to be Korean. But my mother was also chastised for having me and also defined be outside of the norms mm-hmm. of what is to be Korean, because clearly I'm evidence of her, you know, kind of illicit engagement with, um, right. you know, basically with the enemy and, and, and then to be engaged with the black enemy is, you know, that's some of the worst thing you can do. What was the concept of blackness for, for the people in the village? I mean, it, it, it was, it was 
American plus, right? So it's it's not just that they were the American soldiers, but they were there were these lesser in some kind of way. Did they understand the lesser of the black people just based solely off of skin color, or were they lesser because they saw the other white Americans treating them separately, or that they were segregated in some kind of way? Like, what was the concept to Koreans of blackness for you? You know, you know, I I think I think there's um uh, I I think there's kind of a kind of a two sided thing there. You know, uh, so first of all, you know, chances are, you know, because this the village wasn't a camp town, chances are the villagers never had exposure to black people, you know, because yeah. they didn't go in, they didn't go into, you know, the, it, 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 it's a day's walk to go go to go to Bupyong, you know. So, you know, chances are they didn't do it. Right. So I think I think there's a, a, a well, then, let me start with this. People need to know that when it comes to U.S. militarism, in these other countries, when the you know when there are these U.S. military bases, part of the existence you know with basically you know white men running the military, there was this kind of covert subversion of black soldiers by the U.S. military, and some of that covert subversion was to propagate this notion that black soldiers, black people were less than the white soldiers and white people, right? It's it's basically, you know, the racist leadership basically propagating their ideals. So, you know, when they so when they went to these countries, you know, like I said, there were these kind of covert actions. The, they're in Japan. They go, hey, um, Japan, you know, we know that, you know, we're here to help you guys out. But when it comes to, you know, how you guys treat us, you know, first of all, the white guys are the good guys, the black guys, not so good guys. You got to keep an eye on that. Right. So there's there's that. Right. Yeah. You know, but then I also think that there's a natural thing, and this may be kind of controversial to you know to a lot of folks. But you know, I, you know, I've always said that you know when it when it comes to you know think about it, like all around the world, you know, um, the darker you are, basically the worse you get treated. Yeah. All around the world, right? Yeah, every um, culture's done, done, got their version of it. Yeah, every culture's got they got they nigga basically. Right. You know what I mean? Right. Um, so, so to me, there's something, and you know, and you know, you, you've seen the studies about you know young children that that pick the dark. I mean, they pick the light doll versus the dark doll. You know, but then I, I also think that there's a, um, you know, there's a, there's a kind of a natural thing. There's a natural thing that informs how people react to darkness or blackness, mm. you know, and that natural thing, you know, I'm just saying it's, you know, it's, you, you, you're not afraid of the light outside. You're afraid of the darkness. Right. Right. You know, it's easy for a little kid to make a fun at a black kid to be like, you look like shit because you look like my shit. Right. You know what I mean? So, you know, I think there's some just kind of natural things that, that, that almost kind of makes it, you know, there's a part of blackness that goes, that's ah, kind of unlucky, you know, that, you know, we're, we're brown. And some of the things naturally that people are adverse to, you know, whether it's, you know, something being soiled or Mm. like I said, some shit, you know, that's just unlucky. You know, so in the world of of words, you know, if you're trying to make someone else feel bad, that could be a liability. That's an easy liability to attack. Right. Right. So I think kind of going back to the question, you know, I think that that there is this kind of natural disposition, negative disposition that people may have to blackness. And then once you overlay that disposition with a narrative that almost confirms that natural disposition, it, it, it's almost kind of weaponized and it can become extremely potent form of racism. Right. So 
The people out in the village probably, you know, didn't know too much, but they knew that I was black and they mm -hmm. knew I was different. And of course right? you would be the one wetting the bed because you're the black kid in the village. You're the you're the other, you're the unusual. So it would make complete sense even, to even, confirming to them. Even and even though a bunch of other kids were peeing in the bed too. That's hell. I didn't create they didn't create the tradition around me. Yeah. You know, but, you know, but that's kind of how it goes. You know, it's like, you know, one black guy, you know, gets locked up because they were in a fight. Right. And mm -hmm. but they're in a fight when it, and, you know, down on Bourbon Street and 15 other white guys. But the thing that makes it to the news is the black guy. Right. right. Um, that, that got into the fight on Bourbon Street, not the 15 other white guys. Yeah. But, you know, but that's just how racism works. Yeah. You know, that's just how racism works. So. So, yeah, I, you know, I think that Koreans I'm, what was the question exactly? Because I, I ended up going. Uh, about it was really about the concept of blackness that the that the the village or the countryside Koreans That's would right. have had compared to city people who may have seen That's right. more often. That's right. Yeah. Um, you know. It, so and really, I think the village Koreans might have had a hint of some of that narrative. Like I said, that was propagated by uh, U.S. military because you know there must be some folks who you know, do make it to town and sure. hear some things. And, you know, because when the U.S. military comes into town, word gets out sure, yeah, far right. and wide. Right. Um, so they get a taste of that narrative. But then, you know, being a darker color than everybody else, you know, uh, yeah, it, it's it's you know, there, there's I think there's just a natural aversion. You natural also mentioned to blackness in the book. You also mentioned uh, something about your hair being curly. So now, you, you know, you shave your head and and everything like that. But you're you're a big, imposing looking dude walking down the street. But as a kid, you mentioned being kind of stronger than everybody. Plus, you had your your curly hair, you had your darker skin. So there was a lot of things in terms of the, the village kids Are you just there was no way you couldn't stand out. Right. Compared oh, not, to anybody yeah, else yeah, that was there. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I stood out all day, every day. You know, it's like, you know, you, you got a bunch of little kids. If you got a bunch of little white kids there and and then, you know, you got the Hulk standing next to him. <laughs> that motherfucker standing. You know, it's I, I was, you know, I, I was that obvious. Right. Um, you know, yeah. I guess even translating that into once you come to the states, and if you're if you're being aged back two years, you're already gonna probably be a little bit bigger than the kids that that are your in your classrooms at the time too. And then you're physically imposing compared to them, just not in not only in age but in physical stature. You were always kind of a buff, buff kid and everything like that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When 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 I got adopted, you know, at the age of eight, you know, uh, basically what I looked like. Uh, first of all, I had massive legs. Uh, in, in my my family used to call those my legs tree trunk legs. <laughs> do and you have I the Asian a, calves, or do you or do you have more of a? I do, I do. do. I got uh, them too. But it, but, but it, but it's a, yeah, it, they're they're big calves. I wouldn't say they're typical Asian, like just kind of big and almost obnoxious. Right. But um, you know, but it's you know, it, it is a mix of you know, it's a mix of black and Asian. You know, I remember um, you know, as a football player, once you know, when when I got my my you know scholarship to go play college ball you know I, I i'm on the i'm standing on the field and and dudes are like man that's some, some big ass cast on that nigga man what's what's you know but it, but they weren't regular big they were like extra big so mm -hmm. uh because you know there were a couple of other dudes who had the kind of the regular big cast which are kind of high and tight 
right. in which my my casts were big, kind of going all the way down. Yeah, my husband um, calls them my cankles because he says I don't actually have ankles. I I go exactly. from knee knee to cat calf all the way down to feet. Exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly, exactly. So yeah, you know, physically I was always the you know kind of aesthetically was I kind of always big and and looked extremely capable. But you know, like I said, I, I was good enough. I was a good enough athlete to you know to play college ball. Right. You know? So, okay. So we go, now we're transitioning from the the village elders have decided that, and I know with uh, Japanese are the same, bad luck or evil spirits or somehow some kind of demon or something like that has stepped in. And now you're being, you're being asked to leave the village so that they can kind of restore their safe haven. And you go from there to a suburb of, of Seoul? Actually, I go there. From there, we go to a town called Dongducheon. And it's uh, um, north of Seoul, closer to the DMZ. And my mother is probably actually from Dongducheon because why, while we were there, and by the way, it's also another camp town. Mm. Um, and that's where Camp Casey, as a matter of fact, I think Camp Casey's still there. And I think I think to a degree it's still operational, even though most of the U.S. military in South Korea is in a town called Pyeongtaek, which is uh, Camp Humphreys. But but we go there, and you know I remember my mother running around looking for work, and, and I was alone by myself for a good chunk of good chunk of the days. I mean I'd kind of wander through the streets, and, and that's kind of when I when I got my first taste of I'd go into stores and steal all kinds of shit. Mm. So um, so that's kind of where I kind of honed that craft. But but I say that my mother's probably from there. There because because her parents lived up in the hills up in the mountains of, of Dongducheon because I met my grandparents and it was kind of a kind of a standoff it was a kind of a conflict between my mother and my and my parents that you know I'll never forget right um, you know but that but I only lived there for about a year and then so you got to know your grandparents over the course of that whole year I wouldn't say get to know them it was I met them okay. and yeah yeah I, I I met them and um, and to give you a little bit of context uh, I met them and it was you know them telling my my mother um you know basically if we if you get rid of the black boy you know we can normalize our relationship with you mm. you know otherwise you know you're you're on your own got it so you yep. were very aware of that even at that at, even at that young age yeah 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 um and and not only that but uh I, you know i think it's well i, I even at, at at that young age i knew something was up with that dinner that uh, it was because it was my grandparents inviting my mother and I up for dinner and it was a conversation. Um, but it, it was the the feeling that I had, even though I didn't really know what they were talking mm-hmm. about, per se, the feeling that I had, um, you know, like I said, I was I was I was a very self-aware kid the whole time. Right. Um, but then, you know, I got adopted with that other black kid, Joseph. And when I told him that story of meeting my grandparents, he had the same exact story. Mm. Um, but his story, his, his version didn't go as far as mine, because when he got out of the taxi cab with his mother as it drove up the mountain just like me and my mother did and his mother knocked on these uh, uh, this big brass knocker to get inside his grandmother opened the door looked at his mother and him and then shut the door hmm. and him and his mother just got back into the cab and left hmm. um Opposed to my, you know, my grandmother led us in and we actually had dinner and they had that discussion. So so uh, that chapter, the Donachon chapter is written, uh, you know, from my personal kind of emotional memories, mm-hmm. along with 
Joseph's memories, kind of, uh, you know, what he did, but also also with my understanding of how how deep uh, how the culture regards the, 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 the fact that my mother has been with black soldiers and has a black child. Right. It goes deep. Right, it right. goes so deep that their you know, families are willing to cut you off for that mm-hmm. reason. And, that, and I think that's a very important thing that people need to know how, on, on, and you know, basically how deep this stuff is. Right. Yeah, because we have it too. I mean, my, we, we're, my thing is that my mom was also 14 when she was pregnant. My dad was 16. So by the time I was born, they were 15 and 17. So it's already bad enough she's a teenager right. pregnant. But then my grandfather, my white grandfather is driving down the street. He sees my mom you know, kissing a black boy on the street corner or something like that coming home, mm. I think, I think is the story that I've heard. And that was the shock. Oh, it's not only that she's pregnant, which is already a disgrace to our honor. Now you're going to also throw in that the father is black and they didn't know if he was half black or full black or whatever. They just saw the they afro. They knew he was dark. They knew yeah. he was dark they he and was they was saw dark. the afro. Yeah. Um, so she was initially kicked out of the family. And the funny thing is sometimes the child is the reason why they come back together. So my grandmother drops my youngest aunt off to come and see me she was 13 at the time and they saw that I turned out pale I was nice and yellow so then they put a hat on me and made my grandma laugh and so even now to this day if I throw a hat on that's sort of a bonding thing between me and my grandmother Mm -hmm. she loves to see me in hats but if I had come out even a little bit darker forget about it we would never have been in that family again and it took I mean, she's asked me about being black one time organically, but you could tell she wasn't very comfortable with the question. Uh, And beyond that, it was just anytime we interacted where, you know, people see you've seen my face, people see my face. And usually a black person will be like, oh, you're black or your family or are you black? You look black, something like that. And if I'm with my grandma, she'll be like, why did they ask you? if you were black. And I was like, cause they can tell. Why can they tell? Right. Because it's in my features. Well, can everybody tell? No, only black people can tell. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> you know, right, that right, whole thing. Right. So. so don't, don't worry, grandma. I'm not going to blow up your spot. Right. You know, it's like, I mean, you know, unless a black person walks up to me and says you're black, you know, they're not going to know. They're, they're... Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, we we lived in Dongishan for a year, um, and then after that, uh, we moved to the town of Pupyong, which is where Camp Market was. Okay, and so you said that there were times where she would sort of park you in orphanages while she, I guess, sort of survived and and you know probably saved or something like that. And then there was just one time in particular that you realized that the you weren't par- being parked in the same type of space. Is that is that right? I- it's a it's a this is a this is a really really complicated thing or uh or it's a very nuanced thing so yeah so it's so put it this way uh let me see how do i tell this exactly (laughs) try to try to keep it kind of succinct okay so this thing is really it's deep i mean that's that's why i'm kind of hesitating normally i don't really hesitate much but it's deep because this is some this issue is something that I cover in a chapter called Prostitution Protocol. Prostitution Protocol is a, I learned this from my adoptive father because he was a, uh, he was an officer at Yongsan when they adopted me. Mm-hmm. Yongsan was the largest uh, military base in Korea. That, that's the one in Seoul. Uh, we, America has just given that land back mm-hmm. to Korea. Mm-hmm. So the Prostitution Protocol were these kind of unwritten or protocols that, that kind of governed the sex trade 
between South Korea and the U.S. military. Okay. You know, that's why they're unwritten. And at a high level, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that. Um, so one of the things that if you are a prostitute in a camp town, one of the first things that you have to do is you have to establish the, the type of soldier that you're going to serve. Are mm. they going to be the black soldiers or are they going to be the white soldiers? Mm. Now, the U.S. military got desegregated in 48. It got that desegregation got implemented during the Korean War, but even well into the uh, well into the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, and even the even some in the 80s, black and white soldiers had to play separately. So when mm. they played, when they walked off the base and went to the red light district, they had to go to either all black club or all white club. Oh, okay. And those prostitutes that served those soldiers, they had to stay on their side of the line, right? So I remember when my mother and I moved from Dongducheon and moved to Bupyong, I remember my mother physically transforming. She, you know, from her straight hair, she started to have this afro-ish. Hmm. Hmm. Um, and not only that, but I also remember that her girls that she used to run, I said she was a boss, she used to have meetings in our right. in our apartment. Her girls kind of looked, started to look more like her then it looked like kind of traditional Korean women hmm. and that not only did they look different but they sounded like you know when I first saw black soldiers and really kind of connected to them and identified with them one of the things that I noticed about them was you know they to us Korean kids when black soldiers spoke it sounded like they were singing hmm. You know, because okay. of the rhythmic ways that we talk. Right, right. Right. And there was a there was a particular little noise that all of us would kind of mimic and replicate to kind of mimic their voices. Right. Hmm. Um, and my mother and her girls started to sound like them. So even with their Korean language, they would try to mimic the cadence. Y yeah. But, you know, these all pretty much all these girls were, you know, they were they were basically fluent in, in English because oh, okay. they served they served American soldiers. So so what I'm saying is they started to look like the women, uh, these Korean prostitutes who served black soldiers. I didn't know it at the time, but started to look like mm. black women and started to sound like black women because they started to because they were serving the black soldiers. Right. And, and remember, all this is about prostitution protocol. Right. The U.S. military said that. So if you're this prostitute, you had to establish which soldier you're going to serve. And then when you serve on that side of the line, you have to stay on that side of the line. Right. And you had to work in, you know, these brothels for only black soldiers and brothels for only white soldiers. Hmm. And even when you're walking about the streets, a soldier, any soldier that comes up to you, they need to know without any words who they need to know who you serve. Hmm. So the pros Korean prostitutes that serve the white soldiers, sometimes these girls would walk around in cowboy hat. <sighs> Well, so the question is why, and the answer is because the racist U.S. military said that in order to keep soldiers at the uh, kind of ready and kind of at the peak of readiness, ready mm -hmm. to fight at any given moment, one of the things that kind of factors into readiness is not only training and, and exercise and all that kind of stuff, but mm -hmm. also they need to be sexually satisfied. Mm -hmm. You can't have a bunch of dudes all pent up, you know. Right. So they need to be sexually satisfied. So they they have they military brass feels like they have to create these camp towns. Mm. I mean the I mean these uh, red light districts. So and so part of that readiness is you need these soldiers to be healthy. One of the things that goes against them being healthy 
is STDs. Mm. And the U.S. military said that it's the black soldiers that are primarily responsible for spreading STDs. Wow. So to keep them separate, so we're going to keep them separate, you know, the, right. and, and we're going to put the onus on the prostitutes to stay healthy. So every prostitute that worked in a camp town in a red light district had to carry what they call a VD card. It's identification that says that they, ha- they have had their weekly checkup. And if you didn't have that VD card, you're going to get arrested. Or if there were some soldiers that said, hey, um, you know, Bob and Tom and Larry, who patrons this bar, they all got VD now. So now the Korean police will raid that uh, that bar. Mm. And then once they raid them, arrest the girls, they would put the girls into these lockups on the U.S. military base Mm. called monkey houses. Oh, my gosh. And they would force them therapies for STDs. And I know that firsthand because I remember seeing my mother getting arrested and she told me, I'm going to be back in two weeks. Stay Mm. at home, eat downstairs at her homegirl who ran this 24-hour porridge house, and I'm going to be back in two weeks. Mm. And, And so after you know my mother came back home being that she was a boss she probably you know for the two years that i was in bupyong she parked me at these orphanages because she probably knew when the raids were coming oh i see and she probably knew that she was going to be arrested and she and i needed to be taken care of right so these other orphanages that i went to these were orphanages just with korean kids not mixed amerasian kids but korean kids And I remember when I was dropped off there, you know, because I was still the nigga in these orphanages, you know, and they would call me Kamdingi. But I was just like, well, you motherfuckers are the orphans. I got a mother and she's coming back to pick me up. (laughs) So I always kind of had the last laugh. Right. Because when she picked me up, she might as well rolled up in a Rolls Royce. Right. You know, I'm walking like, yeah. That's my mother. I got mine. Get yours. Right, right. So that's kind of what that's the context behind uh, me being parked at these orphanages. But the last orphanage she dropped me off at was different. It was different. Um, And and the way that I write that chapter uh, called the drop off chapter is it was different. Her attitude was different in the morning. Um, Mm. The cab ride out to the orphanage was quiet. Mm. Um, you know, and, uh, and then when I, when I got to this orphanage, I saw a bunch of mixed Korean kids, Mm. white and white and Korean and black and Korean. I was just like, oh shit, this is, this is cool. Right. You know, these are my people. So you, know, you had a little bit of almost excitement too, maybe even though yeah, you, you know, didn't yeah. really know Excite, excitement for that reason, but also excitement for you know, um, you know, every time she dropped me off at an orphanage, she said that she was going to be back, and I always believed her. Right. So I, I thought I was just kind of taking a little break and a holiday anyway. So, mm. you know, I was always kind of excited because it was a little change of pace for me. I see. You know, but um, and it was different because I remember when she dropped me off, she asked me and she goes, you know, Milton, I'm going to I'm going to be back tomorrow to check up on you. Um, Can I bring you something? Can I bring you a gift? And I was just like, "Okay." she's never asked me that. I was like, well, I I want a train set because I, you know, I, I used to love trains. And she was like, "Okay." And then sure enough, she came the next day um, and I'm you know, she's hugging me. Uh, I'm looking back in the cab and I'm not I'm not seeing the train set. 
So I was kind of disappointed, mm. um, you know, but then that's when she told me to, uh, you know, she said that uh, it might be a while before she sees me again. And, and she told me to be strong. And, and that was the last day I saw her. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, but fortunately for me, um, you know, when I did get dropped off, uh, I almost got into a fight with this little kid named Joseph um, because he was riding this really big bicycle. And I had I always had a thing for big bi- <laughs> for bicycles, too. And and then and and I had never been to school. I was eight years old, but I had never been to school. And but Joe Joseph was in school. And the next day he went off to school and I got on that bicycle, and never got off. <laughs> And then um, when the uh, uh, when the Washingtons came to pick him up, because I didn't know it at the time, but they were they had been adopting Joseph for almost a year mm. uh, because he, he had a very complicated adoption because he had a very complicated uh, life up to that point. Mm-hmm. Um, they came to pick him up. And and then that's when I jumped in the car and locked the doors and wouldn't get out. Right. And and then that's when the Washington said that, uh, you know, let, let's let's try to let's try to see. Let's try to take them both home to see which one would fit better um, with the family. Um, and then uh, after uh, after a week uh, with the family, they were getting ready to bring us back to the orphanage to fi- make their final decisions on everything. But then I ran away hmm. and um, and uh, and. And they, they had to spend the entire day. Um, they had the military police looking for for, for me, and, um, and then they found me sleep inside of a in a in a uh, in a playground inside of a, like a barrel in a tube. Mm. Um, and then you know at that time, Gwen Washington was like you know Milton. You know we knew then that we we had to take both of you guys. Right. So yeah, did so. you understand that by them taking you that that meant you were probably going to be a part of a new family and may not see your mom? Did you at that age did you understand that that was a possibility? You know, I, I, um, I think, I think I did, Mm. um, you know, but, uh, but part of, you know, kind of part of the, we'll put it this way. Um, you know, that story of me, you know, running into the car, locking all the doors. I didn't remember that until my adoptive mother told me that. Mm. Right. Um, and you know, so the, so we, and then then when those memories came back, I think there's there was there, there's always been this kind of persistent question of you know, well, Milton, why did you do that? If if you're kind of used to your mother always coming back, why right. would you go run off to another family? Um, and the short answer is really, I don't really know. But um, what I do know is. Um, my, you know, even back in the village, my mother used to tell me about, because I used to ask about my father and she used to tell me about him being in America. Mm. Um, and, um, you know, the, uh, you know, I'm in a third world country. I'm a third world kid. And, you know, I, I was like, I, so I was enamored with this, this idea of going to this beautiful place, you know, these, like I said, these gold cities that floated in the clouds with flying cars. Right. And, right. and if my father was going to be there, holy shit. I definitely had to go. Right. Um, and then, and then once in from the village, then going to Dongnechon, and then coming to Bupyong, and then seeing black soldiers for the first time, and like I said, deeply connecting with them and identifying with them. Um, you know, I fell in love with blackness. Right. You know, and then. Uh, after two years and then being dropped off, you know, at several orphanages and then being dropped off at Father Keene's house, the St. Vincent's Orphanage for Amerasians. Hmm. Um, and, and this car, this big black Ford LTD pulls up and, you know, the most beautiful woman I had ever seen, first black woman I had ever seen. Um, oh, and yeah, she huh? was the most beautiful person that I ever seen. Um, and Gwen, that's Gwen Washington. And then out of the driver's side comes out, you know, one of the blackest men that I've ever seen. Mm. And he looks like he looked like the baddest motherfucker 
ever, <laughs> you know? And that was Don Washington. And I was like, holy shit, I got, I, I got to, you know, they're my ticket. Right. You know, it's like my life is perfect. Right. You know, so, yeah, I, I you know, yeah, I, I, I think it was just, a, you know, I had these ideas of getting to America and I knew that, you know, I could, um, you know, by by being adopted, by having a family want me. But then for me to, you know, because if you ask Gwen Washington, my mother now, you know, why did you guys adopt Milton? She'll tell you all day long. We didn't adopt him. He, he adopted, he adopted us. us. <laughs> You know, so um, so, yeah, it kind of worked. Right. Part of the reason why I call um, slicky boys a term um, basically that means thief mm. um, in, in Korea. Um, and, and, and I part of the reason why I call myself a slicky boy be, you know, be, besides the fact that that's what I was on the streets of South Korea is because I say I stole my way into the uh, to the Washington. Family. <laughs> is a slicky boy something that they would say? In English, or did they? Did, is yeah, there a Korean? slicky boy is a term that Korean nationals would use, mm. say in English, um, as well as U.S. soldiers. Mm. And 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 if you're a soldier getting ready to do a tour in South Korea, they're gonna brief you on the countries, kind of the do's and the don'ts, where you can go, where you can't go, what you can say, what you can't say, mm-hmm. who you can, you know, kind of, you know, uh, um, hang out with, who you can't. Um, but one of those things that they're gonna tell you is kind of keep your eyes and your ears off for slicky boys, little thieves that run around the streets. That will steal whatever you have because it's American and it's valuable in the mm. black market. That's interesting. So what's your dynamic once you transfer over into the Washington's world? I know you said that you still lingered in Korea for another year or so while you and Joseph sort of learned English and became acclimated as part of the family. Is that right? Yeah. Yep. And you were with your other siblings or at least the adopted siblings during that time yep. socializing. Yep. So what, yeah. what was your dynamic after that? Do you feel when you think of them, do you think of them as adopted family or do you think of them as just your family after all these years and um well you know you know it, it, it's well i guess it's kind of both you know it's it's hard not to go well you know they're, they're not well first of all culturally um you know there are a lot of similarities you know because i was kind of raised in this family mm-hmm. um but you know, socially, we're very, very different. You know, my, you know. Uh, first of all, the way that you know who's part of the kind of the, the biological family is it, it, it's Don, Donna, Darren, and Dwin, all the D's, uh. <laughs> right? Um, and you know, and 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 they're you know, as far as black folks are concerned, they're different. You know, um, because they're different um, because they're military. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, you, you know, when, when you have these kind of, you know, different kind of family cultures, military makes, you know, that's, you know, if you're a military brat, that kind of makes you different. Right. Right. Um, if you're if you're a white person, but you're white military, you're different. Right. So um, so not only that, but, you know, they're they're military, but like every one of them is like extremely smart, you know, top, you know, in 99 percentile on the SAT. Um, and Don, Don Northwestern, Donna Northwestern, uh, Dwin Northwestern, Darren Stanford MBA, mm. you know, you know, so that that's different. You know what I mean? It's, you know, I, you know, it, it's, it's rare that you got that kind of lineage, that kind of pedigree and just, you know, like, like one generation, Yeah. you know? So, um, you know, in, in, in many ways, uh, you know, my heart says, you know, those are my brothers and sisters, period. But 
you know, it, it's it's hard not to go, well, you know, but it's not like they were my brothers and sisters all the time right. because I had so much of a life before I right. met them, you know. But right after I got adopted, you know, I had this kind of this zeal and enthusiasm to be a part of a family um, and then also to be in America. Um, so, you know, it was kind of this kind of Jekyll and Hyde situation for me because during my kind of waking moments, I was just like getting into it, getting after it. And um, where we lived in this little housing community that we lived, it was just this great culture of, you know, acceptance. Like, yeah, even though that I, even though I was different, it wasn't a thing because these were all military families. Right. Yeah, military you know? families were always mixed when we, when we were growing yeah, up, too. Like, yeah, your little tribe yeah. was all half black, half white, right. half Asian, half, half white, something. whatever. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? And, and, and like I said, then even the even the white folks, even the white kids, you know, there were some cool ass white kids. <laughs> everybody was just inherently tolerant. And it was it was never a thing to be different in this way. It was more like because they were military families, there was something special about everybody that was a military, like growing up because we lived on the base sometimes, too. Like the, the civilians were those other people. But we exactly. Are all, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Like all of a sudden, you know, I was different. But I'm like, oh, now I'm like. I'm like, I'm in because now different is kind of the majority here, mm. Mm. you know? So it was, it was fantastic. And, you know, Joseph and I, we kind of quickly got acclimated. Um, you know, there were some bumps in the road, but, you know, uh, and I talk about some of that stuff in some of the chapters, but, you know, we, we quickly got acclimated and, um, you know, not only that, but, you know, we, Joseph and I, we started to able, you know, we were, we were able to kind of exert our kind of, you know, physical prowess and athletic prowess. Joseph was, Joe was a pitcher, uh, um, you know, and, and me, I, I played t-ball and, and soccer did all kind of, I was, I was just getting in there. It mm -hmm. was just, it was like a, you know, like a new lease on life. And, and me and Joe, we were just getting in there. You did know? you feel that the two of you had more of a bond than with the other siblings, just because you had a shared or somewhat shared experience, both being black man. You, you know, and maybe so, but but a lot of that was probably just kind of uh, a function of language in the beginning, mm -hmm. um, because you know that's all we spoke was Korean, and you know, and we quickly found that you know we we had kind of parallel lives. We had the, basically the same experience, mm -hmm. uh, with 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 a couple of uh, major exceptions, but and um, you know, but we were so busy, kind of you know, living this. 360 um, uh, uh, change of a life. Right, um, right. We didn't even have any, like, we didn't even have time. You know, it's like, you know, all of a sudden, you know, from being, you know, completely outsiders and isolated and, and orphans, all of a sudden we had a family, you know, kind of three hots in a cot. We were, you know, we were eating <laughs> all day and, you know, my mother, my mother was making birthday cakes for us and we had this massive community and, um, you know, we were a step closer to America and we started, you know, picking up the language. It was, it was a blur of mm -hmm. just living, you know, and so we didn't really kind of, yeah, you you know, me and Joe, you know, we, we were tight, but, you know, but he was, he was two years old and older than, you know, than me. And, you know, so, um, uh, I, I actually became, um, uh, you know, my closest brother, uh, closest sibling is my, my brother, Darren, and he's just a year older than me. Mm. Um, you know, kind of, kind of really, I'm kind of older than him, but you know, he's the Stanford MBA guy. And oh, in terms of the age correction, you're yeah, older, but yeah. you were socialized younger. 
Yeah. But then, you know, by the time we were in high school, because, you know, I had this kind of always outward, outward personality, mm. um, you know, but but Darren was kind of the quiet, kind of the nerd guy, mm. um, like like my other brothers and sisters. Um, you know, I, I was the one that had all the social capital, mm. you know, so, you know, you know, a lot of his friends were kind of my friends and, um, you know, that that sort of thing. So but so so in some ways I was kind of the older brother, you know, right. you know, but. Uh, you know, we, we did that for about a year and a half in, in Korea. And, and, and then we, uh, you know, we were on an airplane, big old 747 and our whole family. And then, uh, you know, we basically, we landed in California, but, uh, we ended up driving out to Lawton, Oklahoma, which is where Fort Sill army base was. Mm -hmm. And that was my first place living in the U S and, um, life was, life was fantastic. You know, have you ever seen the, the, the show on Netflix called Stranger Things? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, you know, the three, you know, the three kids or the four kids running around on their bikes and, you know, right. got walkie talkies and all that. That was like my life, you know, and we we played we played Dungeons and Dragons. My older brother, Don, he was Dungeon Master. And I'm, I remember learning so much vocabulary mm. um, through D&D. Um, you know, we I were. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. We played D&Ds, but we weren't weirdos. You know what I mean? We right. weren't running off in the caves with swords and committing suicide and shit. Right. You know what I mean? That wasn't us, yeah. you know, because we were, you know, we were too normal for that. But we were we were kind of nerds. And, and, and thank God that I got adopted into a family packed full of nerds because, <laughs> you know, like I said, I didn't start school until I was nine years right. old. And when I did, it was in a new language, new culture, new everything. So there was, I have a lot of baggage behind learning. Right. Um, and, you know, but, you know, my, the, the, the learning culture of our family was just enough to offset a lot of that, that allowed me to, to still learn in my way and understand kind of how I learn and, and still find those pathways to, to getting information and being able to use it. Yeah. You know, and, you know, because most of the people who know me now, they go, geez, you know, Milt's smart guy and this and that, you know, and, you know, maybe I am a smart guy, but, um, you know, I almost shouldn't be given, given, you know, my history, you know? Well, it's probably not that you shouldn't be smart, but maybe the education is, would have been different. You probably, you know, had a lot of that intelligence sort of inherently in you and you just had to get the opportunity to learn. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, it's semantics. Yes. Yeah, so yeah, when I yeah. say when I say I shouldn't be. Yeah. You know, but I'm just saying you the shouldn't odds be as well kinda, off or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. The odds are stacked against me. Um, right. You know, in, in, in this situation for me to be, um, you know, someone to be able to realize my intellect. Right. Yeah. You know, but uh, but like I said, I, I, I owe that. And that's one of the reasons why I love my parents so much is mm -hmm. because I, you know, the you know, one of the things that, you know, they just did as because these are just the kind of people that they were. They just established a, a culture of learning uh, in our in our house that, like I said, produced four kids, three Northwestern and Stanford MBA. Mm -hmm. That's incredible. Right. Yeah. You, know? you, you can hear it in your voice, too, when you do talk about them, even if it's briefly like the the admiration that you have both for for Gwen and Don, you said is your father's name. Yeah. Yep. Um, what was that feeling like getting used to having a father in your life for the first time? Like how? Oh, my God. Well, th that is a major thread all throughout. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're going to and I, it probably is a, is another show, <laughs> you know, but because uh, but I'll, but I'll tell you, I'll give me a I'll give you a high kind of a high overview of it. You know, when I saw him getting out that Ford LTD, he was to me the epitome of a man mm. and a black man. 
Um, and he's lived up to that, my expectations and, and exceeded it. Um, now him and I, uh, personally, because he's such a kind of a, um, you know, he's, he's, he's a bit of a hard ass, um, you know, sure. because, military. because he kind of had to be, you right. know, military and he came from 13 kids and, Damn. um, you know, he's got his <laughs> own thing. And, um, and I was that kid in the house that was running around getting into trouble. Um, so we kind of had a culture clash between him and I, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and the family and I, but, uh, to anyone who knows me and thinks kind of highly of me because of the things that I stand for and the things that I do and, and my capabilities, um, it is because of my father and me modeling myself mm. after my father. And I'm, I'll tell you this, and this is dead honesty. I don't stack up at all compared to my <laughs> old man. I don't. You know, thank God I got some strengths in some other areas, um, but he's an extremely formidable person and human being. Um, and and thank goodness he was the kind of hard ass he was because otherwise, you know, with me and my tendencies that I had after being adopted and growing up, you know, I would have been I'd have been the kind of guy that I, I would have got I would have got locked up into too much trouble. Mm. You know, if I and if I didn't have him around, um, you know, he 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 put the brakes on me. You know, the uh, the way that I needed it. Right. You know, I. I, you know, not only do I love my old man, but I absolutely admire him. Yeah. Um, but then at the same time, you know, I can hate his guts, <laughs> <laughs> you, know? <I> you know, and, you know, chances are, you know, chances are it means that, you know, if that's the case, it means that, you know, he was an effective father. Right. And obviously had such a huge capacity of love to bring you and another child into his already established family and and try to give you a crack at life. Well, really, that decision was really more my mother. Mm. It was less him because he he was actually against the idea of adopting a kid. And Mm. my mother just worked him, (laughs) you know, you know, so, um, uh, you know, that's just kind of how that worked. Um, Let's try to get a little bit of a similar type of thing in terms of Gwen, because then now you have the dynamic of this is the first black woman you've ever seen. You said she's the most beautiful woman you've ever seen. She's also you know, obviously a big point of the caregiving that you had um, for the rest of your childhood, but sharing the spot of a mother, since you already have one that you, that you knew up until then, what was, what was that relationship like, or that transition like for you? Well, you know, uh, so, so first of all, let me, let me tell you this, um, both my adopted mother and father, one of the major themes in my whole story and my existence is I might be one of the luckiest motherfuckers that you might have ever met. Hmm. I am. I am. You know, I haven't hit lotto yet, but I would be surprised <laughs> if, I, if I do in my life. And I say that is because um, my mother in Korea was this kind of um, really kind of perfect balance between, you know, disciplinarian and nurturer. You know, she she did it both. She was my mother and my father at, at the same time. And then I get adopted into a family that I end up getting a continuation of my mother in these two people. Mm. You know, my mother was, you know, I, I you know, so, uh, you know, my mother, Gwen, when, when I used to get in trouble, I, you know, my old man used to beat my ass on a regular, but, you know, but, but then after, afterwards, I always used to kind of crawl into my, my mother's lap and, and, or just cry on her shoulder and she'll tell me about, you know, the things that I needed to hear, mm. you know, you know, about, you know, how they love me and how they care about me and they got to do 
this because, you know, all the explaining and the nurturing that, you know, a kid like me needed, Mm. you know, which is exactly what my mother in Korea used to do. Yeah, she used to beat my ass with a broomstick, but she always used to let me kind of crawl into her lap and she would explain explain life to me, you know. So, yeah, you know, and and, and not only that, but it's, you know, one of the things that, uh, um, you know, that I really love about my mother is um, she is one of the most empathetic people I've ever I've ever experienced ever. And and that's a great thing to kind of uh, learn and embrace. Right. You know, from somebody. And and she's she's also one of the most creative people I know. And I say that because I think creativity in my life, me as me kind of living my life as an artist, I think is one of the most kind of uh, it's it's one of the single most attributes that makes my life as good as it is, mm. um, because I feel that, you know, I've always had a you know, I think anyone who's ever been through some shit has a deep desire and a need to express. And, you know, kind of one of my one of my things that I'll tell anybody is, hey, express yourself. You know, whatever that expression may be, it may be, you know, the style that, uh, you know, that that you exhibit in, in, in your fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, it may be you might be a painter, you might be a photographer, you might be a writer. But whatever it is, especially a person of color, chances are you have a deep need to express. Right. Do it. It makes your life better. And um, if you're halfway good, chances are you can make other people's life better. Right. You know, so and that's one of the things that that I that that I got exposed to early from my mother uh, because she used to she used to make these cakes and she was always she was always this wonderful kind of chef and mm. she used to just create just on a whim just boom and and I was just like well that's pretty cool I'd like to have that power yeah you know and and that's like I said that might be like number one uh, in my life in terms of uh, you know me being empathetic. Uh, person and me being the artist that I am. And I, and I, and I really do. I, I, I attribute, you know, some of that I think I had in me, but my mother almost gave me permission to, to, to fully unleash all that. Mm, that's nice. Nice to have had that opportunity or experience just from what could have potentially been a really dark path. Yeah. After after getting dropped off at the orphanage. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, I'm, you know, excuse my French, but I'm a lucky motherfucker. No, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, I love it. Um, all right. So we we're crossing over really close into the 90 minute mark. But I do still want to talk about, you know, your business and, and what drives you for the kind of cre- uh, creating that you do. You're you're obviously very active because not only with your own business, you're also doing speaking engagements and things like that. Right. So let's talk a little bit about that and sort of the black Korean community you've developed over the time that you've been uh, working on the memoir and everything like that. Yeah, well, you know, you know, the black Korean community thing is just, um, you know, kind of, I guess, thank God for social media and all that, because, you know, we've, we've all we've just kind of coalesced around each other. Um, and, you know, it, it, I do, I, you know, in many ways, I just feel like they're my family in many ways. Right. Um, you know, because of because of the shared experience. So, you know, and I, I have some plans, you know, I, like I plan on, you know, being, you know, kind of rich and influential. And I and, and one of the reasons that kind of drives me because I want to do something for us, mm-hmm. um, you know, because, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, being being uh, different, you know, being uh, mixed, being black, being all these other things, you know, that you, you kind of start off, you, you know, you're starting off with a disadvantage at the starting line. And I just said that I'm going to get really good at, you know, aspects of business and I'm going to be too compelling for someone to tell me no. 
and, and uh, you know, maybe this is some of both my black side and my Korean side. I've always kind of been an entrepreneur. Uh, I've always had lots of ideas and, and I think good enough ideas that, you know, that I, I like I know I, 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 I'm able, I'm capable of making some serious money, um, you know, when, when if, if I put my mind to anything mm. um, because my ideas are sound. So so the, the, the kind of the current thing that I got is um, something that's called Slicky Boy Studios. And in, in its current state, what Slicky Boy Studios is, um, is several things. It's um, it is a small business growth consulting service. So that's me kind of developing growth strategies, business uh, uh, sales and marketing and brand strategies for, for small businesses. I have, you know, my client can be, you know, kind of startups or existing um, small uh, small brands or nonprofits or small business, other small businesses okay. kind of, you know, kind of, um, it's kind of agnostic, but it's, but they're mature enough in which they can pay for services because I don't really <laughs> do too much that. You know, um, I'm kind of over that. Um, But then there's also uh, what's called a visual development component to my to my business, which is, you know, after I establish, you know, uh, a sales strategy or marketing strategy and 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 I'm saying that, you know, you ought to do this on social media to get more customers, you know, that might require you to adjust your branding. Mm-hmm. Um, it might require you to set up social media accounts and then start to execute on the social media accounts. And but, you know, but then the business owner goes, you know, I don't really have time to do all that. So what I do is I go out and find the resources to do that sort of stuff, to do the work. So mm-hmm. like I got, uh, you know, I, I got a project going on right now uh, doing exactly what I just said. Um, I also have a project with, with a nonprofit that uh, we're building a website and a database. I don't do any of that work, but mm-hmm. I just manage the project. And I manage the resource so the business owner or the executive director or in that situation, they can kind of, you know, be hands off and, and, and make that happen. Mm. Right. So that's kind of that's the business now. And I also do a lot of photography. I also do a lot of uh, um, career coaching and sales coaching and help people kind of navigate issues through life. But then once the book drops or on the run up to the book, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's going to be kind of a, a publishing component because I got I got a few more books in me. I know mm-hmm. um, there's going to be uh, a content development component, which is me, me creating a lot of video content and, and beyond that kind of supports the book and the brand. And uh, there, there, there are going to be several other kind of factors that it's, you know, speaking, public speaking and, you know, being that I've, I've been in sales for so long, um, I think that once my profile kind of raises, I think I can get a keynote address at uh, a national sales meetings for companies X, Y and Z. So it's going to pivot and it's going to pivot to, you know, services all point to generating more sales for the book. So uh, I'm at, uh, first of all, it's slickyboystudios.com. Um, that's S-L-I-C-K-Y-B-O-Y studios with an S.com. Um, that's my website. Uh, social media, um, you know, on Facebook, there's Milton Washington as well as uh, Slicky Boy Memoir. And, it, and if you really want to keep track of when the book drops, go definitely to the Slicky Boy Memoir um, uh, fan page. Um, and then on Instagram, I'm at uh, both Slicky Boy Studios and Slicky Boy Memoir. And, you know, I'm on Twitter, but I don't really use Twitter much. And, you know, whatever other social media platforms out there, I almost kind of hate social media. I kind of do it because I got to. But, um, you know, but yeah, yeah, that's where that's where I am. All right. I follow the Slicky Boy Memoir on Facebook 
I found that the other day. And I will also share those types of things on our websites as well. We also have the Militantly Mixed podcast page on Facebook as well. So I'll, I'll put a little thing on that for you. But I, I think we can go ahead and wrap here. And then if All you, right. let's just chat in a couple of days too and see what other things you got going on. So yeah, <laughs> so yeah definitely. definitely. I, and, I, and, I, and I really appreciate, um, um, I, I, think, I think you're a great interviewer. Thanks. <laughs> I'm still, you know. I'm still trying to get into my flow of it, but I think I'll get there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're, you're, you're there to me. Thank you. I appreciate so, it. So, so thanks for the opportunity and thanks for doing this, thank, okay? Yeah, thank you for participating. I appreciate it. I'm really excited that uh, we connected because I was I was looking for that um, that uh, Black Asian connection that I just haven't been able to find. I've, I've found a lot of the hafus that are on the white side and things like that, but um, this has been great. I'm so glad that we got a chance to meet. I appreciate you. Well, thank you so much. Militantly Mix is a main hustle media podcast produced and hosted by me, Charmaine Johnson. Music is by David Bogan, The One. And if you like what you heard on Militantly Mix, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes and wherever you find your podcasts. Main Hustle Media. Turn your side hustle into your main hustle.